Welcome to the Mission North Shore podcast. If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at the Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. How is everybody? Good. All right. Get into the Word. Let's open up to Romans chapter 1, if you would. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on that back table. You're welcome to grab one. If you don't have one at home, you're welcome to take it home with you, and it will be your Bible. We are in our second week now of a new series in the book of Romans, and last week we covered all of verse 1, where Paul introduces himself to the Christians at Rome, and he introduces himself in three ways. He says that he is a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we talked about what it means to be a bondservant, the fact that he actually chose to follow and serve Jesus. It wasn't out of compulsion or obligation, but because he had so experienced the grace and love and the mercy of Christ that he longed to, he desired to follow him and to serve him gladly. We then talked about Paul saying that he is called as an apostle. We talked about what an apostle is, and then the third thing we said is that Paul said he was set apart for the gospel, meaning that he recognized that he had this calling on his life and that he wanted to fill it. And our application last week was then what? We also have a calling, don't we? Every single one of us were created for something. God created you for this thing in which he longs for you to walk in. And some people will, and some people won't. Our prayer is that every one of us would. So that's what we covered last week. This week, We're going to cover all of verse 2, the whole thing. (laughs) So as you're in Romans chapter 1, let's read 1 and 2 just for the context of it, and then we'll pray. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, who's called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised, now this is the subject part, the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's the key to it, that the gospel of God was promised beforehand through the prophets and written down in the Holy Scriptures. With that in mind, let's pray. Lord, we recognize then that what we hold in our hands are literally words from God. Because that is true, we want to give you now all authority to speak into our life. So we pray that you'd fill this room with your Holy Spirit, which will guide us into all truth, and that as we look at these verses, you would speak directly to our hearts, right where we're at. You would bolster our faith and encourage us in this one truth, that what we hold in our hands are truly, truly words from God. We pray this together because we want you to speak to us, and we pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, we begin by reminding ourselves of a fact that we talked about last week, and that is the book of of Romans is unique in the fact that Paul didn't know the people to whom he was writing to personally. So in the other epistles, he knew who he was writing to. He knew Timothy, he knew Titus, he knew the Galatian church. He had been with with the Ephesian church for some three years. He knew the Thessalonican church and on down the line. So in every other epistle, he knew who he was writing to. But when it came to the Romans, the Christians at Rome, he didn't know them. 
So he didn't really know exactly where they were spiritually. He didn't really know exactly the issues that, he fa- that they faced in the other epistles. He wrote to address issues that the other churches were, were dealing with. And so instead what Paul does is he writes now this deep, deep gospel letter. His desire is that they would understand the most important thing that any one of us could ever understand, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he begins there at the end of verse 1 by saying, this is the gospel of God. He makes this statement. This is the gospel of God. And then immediately as he goes into verse 2, moves to the proof that this is true by pointing out that God promised all of these things, the gospel and all the things in them, that he, that he promised it beforehand through the prophet. And so that is to say that God told anybody who would listen the good news, the gospel of what he was going to do before he ever did it. And he had it written down in the Holy Scriptures. And therefore, when it comes true, because it's already been given as prophecy, when it comes true, you and I would have proof of who the true and living God is in a world full of fakes. You and I would have proof that we have the right book because there's no other religious writing that has any prophetic value, meaning that none of them have any fulfilled prophecy within them. And you and I would have proof of who the Savior Messiah is because nearly every major detail of his life was foretold ahead of time and then fulfilled perfectly in Jesus Christ. Amen? And so what that does then is it makes prophecy the proof for the truth of God. Prophecy was always meant to be the proof for the truth because no one can predict the future and bring it to pass except God himself. And God makes this argument in the Old Testament. He lays it out and tells us this, that he is God alone And the proof of him being God alone in a world full of fakes is that he's the only one that can tell you what's going to happen, sometimes hundreds of years in advance, and then himself bring it to pass. Let me give you a couple examples of him making this statement. First one's going to come from Isaiah. Now, at the time of the prophet Isaiah, the nation of Israel had gone wayward. They had gone into idol worship. And what God is going to say to them through these prophecies is, Hey, let me give you a way to test to see whether your idols are God or whether I'm actually God. And so in Isaiah chapter 41, God is mocking their idols. And it says there, present the case for your idols, says the Lord. Let them show what they can do, says the king of Israel. Let them try to tell us what has happened long ago so that we may consider the evidence Or, and this is where the prophecy comes in, let them tell us what the future holds so that we can know what will happen. Yes, tell us what will occur in the days ahead and then we will know that you are God. You see what he's doing there? He's mocking their gods. He's saying, listen, if those little carvings that you got over there are able to predict the future and bring it to pass, we'll know that they are gods. Of course, they cannot. He says it again in Isaiah 44. 
He says, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, the Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. He says, I am the first and the last, and this is the key to it. There is no God besides me who is like me. Let him proclaim and declare it, yes. Let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nations. And then here comes the prophecy. And let them declare to me the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. You see what he's saying? He's saying, if any of these other gods are truly gods, let them prophesy and prove it. And that's his point. There is no God besides me. Isaiah 46 again says the same thing. For I alone am God. I am God and there is no one like me. Only I can tell you the future before it happens. Everything I plan comes to pass. Or Isaiah 48. Long ago I told you what was going to happen. Then suddenly I took action and all of my predictions came true. For I know how stubborn and obstinate you are. Your necks are as unbending as iron. Listen to this. Your heads are as hard as bronze. You don't want to hear that from the Lord, by the way. Then here's the key. That's why I told you what would happen. I told you beforehand what I was going to do. Then you could never say that your idols did this. You see what he's getting at? There's more of them, but that's just a cross-section of some of them. The point is what? That God uses prophecy to prove who He is. And there are thousands of these Old Testament prophecies that have been fulfilled. Some of them big prophecies, some of them small prophecies, having to do with all different things. Uh, Some of them having to do with things like uh, the destruction of of entire nations. So God told us that He was going to destroy the Edomites and the Philistines and Babylon and the Assyrians and the people of Tyre. And guess what? You've never met an Edomite in your entire life. I can guarantee it. You've never met a Philistine, anybody from Babylon. Why? Because God destroyed those nations just as He said He would. He told us the successive nations that were going to come into power and rule over the known world in Daniel chapter 2. He told us that Babylon would be the first, followed by the Medo-Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans. And what can you do? Grab any history book, flip to it, and what are you going to find? It happened just like God said was going to happen. He told us the nation of Israel would be restored back to the land. Guess what? May 14th, 1948, Israel restored to the land. He told us the east gate of the temple would be sealed up. We're going to go there in October. Guess what we're going to find? The east gate sealed up to this very day. Here's a cool one. He told us of a guy named Cyrus, King Cyrus. And what King Cyrus was going to do was allow the Israelites to come back from Babylon. He was going to release them from their captivity after 70 years in Babylon. And in Isaiah chapter 44 and in Isaiah chapter 45, it introduces us to King Cyrus. And it tells us who he is and exactly what he was going to do in the releasing of the captives that come back into Israel. Here's the clincher though. The book of Isaiah was written 150 years before Cyrus was born. So God called him by name, said exactly what a pagan, God, what a pagan king was going to do 150 years before the guy's even born. The point is what? Only God can do that. And there are all things that we can check and verify that I've just mentioned. 
They're all things that God said was going to happen, and then he brought them to pass. And there's thousands of these more kind of general prophecies throughout the Old Testament. But verse 2 tells us that the gospel itself has been prophesied beforehand through God's prophets and written in the Holy Scriptures. And Paul places great importance and emphasis on these prophecies because he begins the book of Romans with them. We're only uh, two verses in before he brings it up. And as we go through a 16-chapter book, you're going to have 61 quotations of the Old Testament in a 16-chapter book, all for the purpose of proving that the gospel that Paul is preaching is undeniably from God, right? That's the point. The point that Paul's making in verse 2 is that the gospel is not new. It's not something that just came about when Jesus walked the earth. It wasn't something that his disciples cooked up, and it wasn't a clever invention of Paul. Paul is saying that the message that he's been preaching for 20 years and that he's writing to the Romans is the gospel of God. And the proof that it is from God is that it was promised beforehand, it was delivered to the prophets, and it was written down in the Holy Scriptures. He's saying that this gospel is nothing new, that it's all throughout the Old Testament. You see, we often develop this mindset that the Old Testament and the New Testament are two different things. I've even heard Christians say that in, in terms of like, hey, you ever, you know, picked up and read Daniel and like, no, nah, I'm a New Testament Christian. You know, I don't mess around with that Old Testament stuff. And they act as though the Old Testament and the New Testament are two completely different things, but they're not. They're both part of one perfect story. The Old Testament gives us the promise of the Savior. The New Testament gives us the fulfillment of that promise in the Savior. And so the gospel is not just a New Testament thing. In fact, the very first roots and rumblings of the gospel go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You only get three chapters into the Bible before humanity falls. The Bible has about 1,900, ver- uh, 1900 chapters in it. 1,900 chapters. You only get three chapters in and you get the first prophecy of the gospel where God predicts the breaking of the power and the penalty of sin by the defeat of Satan when he says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 to Satan, he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. You shall crush his head and he will bruise your heel. That is a gospel prophecy because on the cross, the Messiah crushed the head of Satan while being bruised for our iniquity. So it goes all the way back to the beginning, these gospel prophecies. We see it in the time of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 22, Abraham is told to take his son, and it says there, your only son. He's not counting Ishmael. He says, take your only son, the son that you love, to Mount Moriah, and sacrifice him atop of Mount Moriah. Of course, Mount Moriah is the location that would later become Jerusalem, where Jesus himself was to be sacrificed. Now, as Abraham and Isaac are walking towards Mount Moriah, Isaac doesn't know he's going to be the sacrifice. 
And so as they walk up the side of the mountain, he points something out to his father. He says, Dad, we've got everything we need for the sacrifice. We brought the fire. We got the, you know, all the stuff here that we're supposed to have for a sacrifice, except we forgot something. We don't have a lamb. We don't have the sacrifice itself. And from that then comes Abraham's gospel prophecy. And he says this, God will provide himself the lamb. Now, the wording is very important that we understand it from the original language. It's not that God will provide a lamb. It's not what it says. But that God will provide himself the lamb, meaning that he himself will be the lamb atop of Mount Moriah one day. Of course, as they go along that day, God does not allow Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. He binds him, puts him on the altar. He gets ready to sacrifice him, and the angel of the Lord stops him and says, we now know that there's no good thing that you would ever withhold from God because you're willing to sacrifice your son. And Abraham looks up, and what does he see? He doesn't see a lamb. He sees a ram. Now, this is important because it's a different Hebrew word. He doesn't see a lamb. He sees a ram with his horns caught in the bushes. He takes that ram, sacrifices him atop of Mount Moriah on the altar that day. But that was not the fulfillment of the prophecy. The prophecy was that God would provide himself the lamb. Abraham recognized at that moment that that was not, that the ram was not the fulfillment of the prophecy. Because he says this in verse 14, Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord what? Will provide. Not the Lord has provided. He provided a ram that day, but that wasn't the fulfillment of the prophecy. So Abraham says, this place will be called, the Lord will provide, because he recognized it was still a future event. And then he goes on to say, as it is said in this day, the mount of the Lord, um, it, it will be provided. But literally, it's in, in the Hebrew, it's not provided, it's seen. So what he's saying, literally one day, there's going to be something seen on top of this mountain provided by the Lord. Of course, the prophecy was fulfilled when? 2,000 years later, when Jesus Christ himself was crucified atop of that same mountain. So the gospel has those deep roots all the way through the Old Testament. You could look at the the Passover. The whole Passover points to Jesus. And then from there all the way through, we have these Old Testament gospel prophecies. Let me give you a few. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Messiah would be born to a virgin. That he would be God in the flesh, Emmanuel that he would be preceded by a forerunner, which we now know as John the Baptist, that he would preach and be a light in the region of Galilee, that he would heal the blind and the deaf. We're told of the triumphal entry to the very day in Daniel chapter 9, if you do the calculations, that he would be rejected by his own people. We're told in the Old Testament that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, that his disciples would desert him. We're told already in the Old Testament that he would be beaten and spit upon and scourged. We're told that he'd be hung on a tree, that his hands and feet would be pierced, that he'd be given vinegar and gall. We're told of the very words that Christ would cry out from the cross, 
We're told that he would pray for his enemies, that his side would be pierced. We're told of his burial. We're told of his resurrection. And we're told of his ascension to the right, to the right hand of the Father. And that's just a sample. There's 325 of these prophecies that were fulfilled perfectly at the first coming of Jesus Christ. And that's why in John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus is able to say, you search the scriptures. To those that have been antagonistic to him, he says, you guys are a bunch of Bible scholars. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But what does he say? It is these that testify about me. He says, if you know those Old Testament prophecies, it's all pointing to me. The whole gospel's in there. And therefore, it's quite easy for us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ completely using the Old Testament. If you have any Jewish friends, you can preach to them the entire gospel by using the Old Testament. Jesus did. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, it says this. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee. And what does it say of him? He was preaching the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And what does he say? Repent and believe what? The gospel. What is he preaching? How is he preaching the gospel? He's not preaching the cross. He hadn't gone to the cross yet. He's not preaching anything from the New Testament. He's not walking them through the Romans road. That hasn't been written yet. What is he preaching? He's preaching the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies pointing to himself as the Messiah. I'll give you an example. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus went into a synagogue in Nazareth. And he was given the scroll of Isaiah there in the synagogue, and he was to stand and read, read this, this scroll. And it's turned to Isaiah 61. Whether it was already turned there or whether he turned there, I'm not 100% sure, but it's turned to Isaiah 61, which is prophecy of the Messiah. And so he reads Isaiah 61 that talks about the coming of the Messiah and what the Messiah would do. He'd bind up the captives. He would cause the blind to see and all of these things that the Messiah was going to do. And then he sat down and he said this, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He preached the gospel from where? From the Old Testament. He took their scroll, he read it, and he says, Hey, by the way, guys, what this says, it's all me. And the point is that the gospel is not new. It is the fulfillment of God's perfect plan. And that's the point that Paul is getting to as he's writing to the Romans to say to them that the gospel of God was promised beforehand through the prophets written in the Holy Scriptures. Let me give you another example of Jesus preaching the gospel. After he had resurrected, he met two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. You guys are probably familiar with the story. He joins them and he begins to walk along with them, but they don't recognize that it's him. So whether it was veiled from their eyes and they weren't able to see Jesus, even though they were his disciples, 
or whether it had something to do with his post-resurrection appearance, I'm not 100% sure. But what I do know is they didn't know it was Jesus walking with them. And as they're walking along, what are they doing? They're mourning the death of Jesus. As he's walking with them, they're mourning his death. And they're sharing with Jesus how their hopes have been dashed. We believed him to be the Messiah. We put our trust and faith in him. Then they put him to death. And one of them makes the comment that, and yeah, this morning, some of the ladies ran over to the tomb to check it out, and he wasn't there, so we're sad. That's where they're at. That's where their heart is. Now, what do you think Jesus said to that? Look at Luke chapter 24, 25. Jesus said to them, Oh, foolish men. You don't ever want to hear that from Jesus. Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer? All of these things to happen for him to enter into his glory? Was it, was it not necessary for all that had been prophesied, all that had been told to you for hundreds of years, the entirety of the Passover that you've been celebrating every single year, what happened atop this mountain in Genesis chapter 22, what was said to Satan in Genesis chapter 3.15, was not all of that necessary to be fulfilled? And then what does he do? Beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself from the scriptures. Where did he preach the gospel from? From Moses and through all of the prophets, he preached to himself. So first he gives them this scolding for not believing in the Old Testament prophecies. And then he gives them a lesson walking them through the whole thing. And I thought maybe we should take note of the scolding that Jesus gave these guys. And maybe we should take note of the fact that Jesus expected his people not only to study and know the word of God, but also to believe it and live it out. There was no reason for those boys to be sad that morning, was there? If they had known and believed the scriptures. Yet what they hear from Jesus is what none of us want to hear. Oh, foolish man, why are you so slow to believe? It's been given to you for centuries. And here's our final application for today. Here's where we're going to wrap it up, and here's what I hope that we take home. That you and I can have great confidence that the Bible is literally the Word of God. You see, we often use that phraseology, Word of God, don't we? Ah, we're going to study the Word of God. We believe the Word of God. We've got the Word of God. We should open the Word of God. And we use that phraseology. But how often does it register to us that these are actually, literally, words from God given to us? Maybe you came in today and you're a little shaky in your faith. Or maybe you came in today and you're like, I just don't know. I just don't know about Christianity. I, I kind of think, I kind of believe that Jesus is somebody, did something. I think that he's special in some way, but I'm doubting and I'm not 100% sure. After all, there's all of these people and all of these groups and all of these religions saying that they have the way. And you're saying that you have the way. So how can I really know who God is? You see, that's 
the point that Paul is addressing for the Romans. Paul is writing to Rome. He's writing to a culture that has been deeply influenced by Greek mythology and Roman paganism. There's no shortage of man-made religions in Rome. All religions outside of the Bible are man-made, made-up religions, and Rome had plenty of them. And he only gets two verses in to the book of Romans before he sets Christianity and Christ apart by saying, this is not made up. This is not man-made. This is not a myth. It's not a tradition. This is the gospel of God, and the proof is the countless prophecies that Jesus Christ has fulfilled. Church, that should give us great confidence. That should bolster our souls this morning. It should reinforce our faith every single time we read one of these prophecies. And if you read your Bible, you're not going to read very long before you come across one of these prophecies because a third of your Bible is predictive prophecy. And every time we read one, we shouldn't just think, well, that's cool that that happened, but we should put it in the whole body of prophecy and say, oh my goodness, God has written me a book. That should give us confidence, amen? But not only confidence, it should affect the way that you and I live because we should long to read our Bibles. We should give it priority within our schedules. Why? Because it's truly words from God. We should endeavor to follow and live it out. Why? Because it's truly words from God. He gave them to us to be a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. And we should share it. Why? Because what we carry are truly words from God. What could anybody in this world hear that would be more important than truly words from God Almighty, the one that created them? And we should worship in direct proportion to a God that loves us enough to write us this amazing book to tell us how He stepped out of heaven and into our earth to save our soul. We should respond to the fact that what we hold in our hands right now are truly words from God. So I hope that this week as we leave, that that'll just resonate and ring in our ears. That which we have are truly words from God. God loves us that much. He didn't leave us to try and figure it out. He said, guys, let me tell you who I am who you are, and what I've done for you. And that should, that should change us. So now as we prepare for a time of worship, let us then worship in direct proportion to a God that loves us that much. Lord, we're in awe of you. We are in awe of you. We're in awe of your word. We remind ourselves now that if we've ever let dust collect on this Bible, it was dust collecting on the words of God. We ask as we stand and as we worship 
you would sink that truth deep into our hearts. That right now, tomorrow and this week, we would respond rightly. We would open your word with a new zeal. And every time, in every word, we would remind ourselves that God wrote this to me. In every truth that we come across, we would remind ourselves this is not a good suggestion, but this is my Creator speaking right to my soul. Lord, would you help us now to wrap our head around that truth and to fill our lives with your holy word. In Jesus' holy name, amen.